Welcome to the Brand Intelligence Podcast, the show where we pull back the curtain on some of the world's smartest brands. I'm your co-host, William Tyree, and today we'll look at how marketing teams are using new media strategies to shape brand image, create awareness, and engagement with their audience. Joining me today is Ian Fajan, CEO of enterprise podcast production company, Caspian Studios. Just a few weeks ago, one of Ian's podcasts reached number one on Apple Podcast Charts out of literally millions of podcasts. To get there, he used Hollywood-style storytelling, complete with big-name actors, and will use that example to talk about the future of brand marketing and brand management. Welcome, Ian. Great to see you. Yeah, great to see you as well. Welcome to the podcast. So, Ian, before we dive into your amazing story, we'd like to ask guests to give us a theme song. So, if you were walking out on stage today, what would your walkout song be? So I have to do something that would make my son happy because he's two and a half and I listen to his favorite songs all the time. So it would have to be I'm Still Standing by Elton John because that's my son's favorite song. And that's what it feels like to be a marketer sometimes. Just stand standing. My other option was Try Everything. Because uh, that's one of his other favorite songs, which also kind of feels like marketing sometimes, because we feel like we we try everything. I love that. That's a great song, and it's actually timely. I just watched Elton John. He was on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. He inducted Bernie Toppin, so that was actually pretty moving. I'm sure he would be very happy to hear that. <laughs> Indeed. I love it. Awesome. Well, why don't you tell us what Caspian Studios does? How did it start? How is it scaled? Yeah, so we are a B2B video podcast as a service company. Mm -hmm. And so we have 65 customers that are primarily B2B tech companies that are creating podcasts and video series. And a lot of those are, you know, interview style, some are blended narrative, some are scripted. And then two of them are our fiction series, uh, which I know we're going to talk about here in a little bit. I started it a, a few years ago after I had founded a media company and I had been talking to a bunch of CMOs and marketing leaders that were my pals. They're like, hey, you know, you should do all this stuff, but just you know, for other people, uh, instead of from a media perspective. And I had, had the idea of podcasts as a service for B2B and, and uh, you know, the rest is history. Awesome. In your view, what role do podcasts have today in terms of enterprise brand strategy and brand marketing? Yeah. So I think that I think about it a lot um, because it's, it's our business, but I think it starts with something that's like before a podcast series. I think it starts with this idea of serialized content. And so I just wrote a book about this called the serialized content framework, where we basically studied uh, what Hollywood is doing, what Netflix is doing, what Hulu has been doing, and apps like TikTok and and all of that. And what has become really clear is that is like serialized content is eating the world, which is everyone has been pushing to make series and serialized content rather than one-off stuff. And so when you look at the B2B landscape, so often we would do stuff that is very much one-off, like a single webinar or a single blog post. But then when you look at the serialized content that's been out there that works really well, you think of like Dreamforce, which is, you know, a conference, but it's it's really a series. It's a series that happens every year. Or if you were to look at the portfolio of content that Salesforce pushed to was Salesforce Plus, which is like a portfolio of content. And if you look at a lot of the B2B companies that are working really well, they've been making series. And a lot of those are podcasts or video series. 
uh, or video podcasts or, or whatever you want to call it. Some of them are short form, some are long form, some are scripted, some are narrative, some are interview style, some are, you know, shorter episodes, some are longer episodes, some are mini series. But the key there is that it's something that you subscribe to, usually in app, whether that's like you know, Apple Podcasts or YouTube or Spotify or whatever. It's stuff that you can also subscribe on their website, potentially. And it's something that you just build a relationship over time. And it doesn't mean that you need to listen to like every single episode, but people know that it's out there, it's going, and then you see an episode that you like and you say, oh, I'm going to go listen to that. And it's way easier to build series. And Hollywood have shifted billions of dollars into series for that exact reason. It is way easier to market number two than it is to market something that is like brand new. And I think that this is just something that B2B really hasn't done a lot of. And they're starting to more and more. And brands are starting to do this uh, more and more. And if you look at things like the Lego movie or Barbie, which recently came out, which I think Barbie has broken like every single record, and they're going to make a bunch more of that sort of stuff. This is something where they've already built a brand, and then they're creating a series and something that you can engage with on an, on an ongoing basis. It's kind of obvious when you say it, but you need to have a clear sort of own media strategy, and you need to be thinking about series. And podcast is just one of the ways that you can tell series, but it's really effective, and we can get into that too. That's amazing. Yeah, I love the way that you're thinking about that. I mean, even Dreamforce, which has been around for a really, really long time now, you know, they graduated then from an annualized series then to all these local Dreamforces. So I think even from a conference perspective, I think that really, really works. And you're completely right. Even if you look at how novels are being adapted now, yep. once upon a time, you know, a novel was like a two hour movie. And that was pretty much it. You know, now most novels are limited series on Netflix. So it seems like you're really adapting to the way that consumers are actually, you know, digesting content. And I love the fact that you're doing it for the B2B world. Let's give people an example. So why don't you tell us about, you know, your vision kind of for Hollywood style storytelling in the form of the Murder and HR podcast. Tell us about, you know, how that came to be and what it is. Yes. Yeah, so Years before I had started Caspian, I was thinking about this idea of like fiction content in B2B is basically like not done at all, but essentially all of our favorite stuff is either fiction or like narrative nonfiction. So like true crime, stuff like that. So two of the most popular genres are like murder mysteries and true crime. You see them everywhere in all sorts of different formats. And if you look at some of the most popular shows right now, like Only Murders in the Building or Dirty John or Serial or things like that, some of the most popular series are, are in that genre, right? Somebody dies and we got to figure out, you know, who it is, or there's a mystery of some sort of thing. And, you know, years ago, I was just thinking like, it's crazy that the most popular stuff that people love, that they obsess over, is something that's like pretty achievable in terms of writing and creating. And no B2B company ever does this. Even though like you could tell the story anywhere, the setting of the murder mystery can be anywhere. So it seems like it's something that you could create if you had all the right pieces together. So flash forward a number of years. So Caspian rolled out a product called uh, a business thriller. And basically what that is, is it's essentially a murder mystery kind of like in a box, right? For a B2B company or B2C company or whoever. And the reason why I wanted to, to roll it out was sort of to, to show like, hey, this is something that we're thinking about. This is something that we want to do. And we had created a cybercrime thriller called The Hacker Chronicles, which had done really, really well in its first season. And I wanted to say like, hey, we're going to offer this. So we got in touch with the team at Gym Pass 
and their CMO, Ryan Bonici, is fantastic, and he's a very forward-thinking CMO. And I had pitched him this idea, like, hey, I think that there's a really cool idea for a murder mystery set in HR. I used to be in HR when I was in the Army. I was an HR leader. I've thought about HR a lot. They sell into the HR community. Jim Pass, like the, the buyers of it are on the HR side. And I was like, I think that if we made a murder mystery set in HR, it would do really well. If you look at like the crossover between the HR community and how many people listen to podcasts and true crime and things like that, there's a huge overlap there. And so I think that we could tell a very heartfelt story about HR, uh, like that I, I refer to as like a love letter to HR, about all the crazy, zany, impossible things about it. And uh, I don't want to ruin the the series, but in this particular series in Murder in HR, there's a huge twist that happens at the end of the second episode where the company uh, in which the murder happens is not exactly as it seems. And so it's it's a ridiculously crazy story. And it highlights all these little elements of HR that are so intimate and fun and funny and weird. And then it heightens them all with these ridiculous stakes around it. And it makes it all seem a little bit more doable. And part of the thing that we talked about was that if you want to highlight some of the things in HR, you can't really do it with nonfiction quite as well as you can do it with fiction, even if those circumstances are, are pretty crazy. One of, the, one of the examples that we heard from a CHRO was that somebody basically was trying to quit their job and they walked in with like this super crazy t-shirt. And he was like, yeah, I could never tell this story publicly because of like how profane the t-shirt was. And I was like, well, we could tell that on like a fiction series because <laughs> that's something you could talk about. And so it's this idea of like, you can tell a story better in a fiction way because you control all of the elements than you can a lot of times in a nonfiction story, or you can pull from those type of things. And we were able to write and to create this really cool story about these two characters, Gemma and Nicholas. One is a brand new HR manager and one is the head of HR at this crazy tech startup. And one of the people on their team is electrocuted on stage at a company all hands. And then they have to solve this murder together over the course of the next 12 episodes. And so we cast Kate Mara as Gemma. We cast Brett Gelman as Nicholas. They are just unbelievably fantastic. They're so cool as these characters. And it's just like a really fun, kind of campy, funny, but like with a clear heart sort of a story. And it just went viral and it hit number one in fiction on Apple Podcasts. And to my knowledge, it's the first time like any B2B content has ever you know, charted in any way to that degree. And, uh, you know, we've done 750,000 plus listeners in the first three months, and we just aired the final episode. So it's probably going to go a lot higher than that. Yeah, that's a great explanation. And let's talk a little bit about, I think, additional things that you've done there. So first of all, it is funny. It is addictive. It is very much, I think, Hollywood style storytelling for sure. The thing that really struck me, other than all the ship puns, I won't spoil this for everybody, but I feel like I've got a dozen ship puns that I can't get out of my head just because there's a lot of them and it's it's actually like very, very, very funny and entertaining. But let's talk a little bit about branded content. I think branded content or the idea of branded content has been around for centuries, right? In terms of how do you actually, you know, include your whatever it is software, product, whatever, you know, in a story that people are otherwise enjoying and you have product placement that actually feels natural. One of the things that I think you've done here that's really interesting is by having an HR leader in a story called Murder About HR, it actually makes it pretty seamless to talk about your sponsoring company, in this case, Jim Pass, in a pretty natural way. And I thought that that was handled, in my mind, at least pretty seamlessly. I don't think, had I not known you, 
I think it would have just kind of rolled over me and I'd just been like, oh, that's something I'll have to look up and see if that's real, right? Yep. Um, so um, congrats on that. You know, I've sent it actually around to, you know, a couple other HR leaders that I know and, um, you know, had really, really good reactions. And at this point, you know, I've listened to several episodes, most of which mention this software provider. And I can't yep. say that I've ever had that experience in any other way. For the most part, if you're interested in listening to a, you know, habitual B2B podcast series, sometimes, you know, the ads, unless they're really, really grabbing, you know, they just kind of roll past you. So um, congrats on all that. But why don't you tell me a little bit about how you approach the concept of branded content within these series and, and how that's unique in your mind? Yeah. And I appreciate, I appreciate the listens and the shares, but I, I super appreciate noticing the the way that we put the brand in product placement. You know, I, I have a, a love-hate relationship with even the term branded content and how it's, how it's even thought of. I almost wouldn't even classify this as branded content, this, this series. I really classify it more as product placement for the exact reason that you mentioned. And our thought, a thought on this, there's actually only four mentions of Jim Pass in the entire series, and a bunch of them are, are in those first three episodes for that reason. But the thing that when we sat down, what we wanted the show to feel like was to be very seamless that you're in the show and that in the same moment that when 007 whips the new car around and it zooms in on the front of that bumper... And you're like, oh my gosh, this is of course like an ad for a Mercedes or, or whatever, that you have that moment as a listener where in audio, it's way harder to do product placement, right? Because you can't show it, you have to say it and the characters have to say it and it has to be integrated in a way that makes perfect sense. And so for us, we wanted to make sure that it made sense that Jim Pass was used by this tech company and that the characters actually had a reason to be talking about it in the story. Like it would not have just, it could not have just been like plopped in. It had to have a reason. And for sure, we get people on, you know, in the comments sounding off like, oh, this is product placement or like, you know, this is so annoying. And I'm like, is it more annoying than a minute and a half of mid-rolls? Because that's the alternative, right? Would you rather have a minute and a half of mid-rolls right in the center of your story? Or would you rather have like the brand mentioned in context of the story? And, you know, to each his own, I think it was Tim Ferriss has said like 80 something percent of his listeners don't even care that there are ads because they like to learn from Tim. So, you know, stuff like that is really overblown in terms of like the impact. We're around advertising so much. We have ads that distract us all the time. And we just wanted to not break the story once we're in the story, you know, for the entire episode. And the best way to do that is with product placement. And from a brand side of things, it tells the story more effectively to do it that way than to stop and do an ad break in the middle. And there's an ad break, you know, there's ads at the beginning of the episode and at the end, but to just have a few references to it. And I just think thinking about branded content broadly, like I heard this description, I love this, that branded content is a gift to your audience with an expectation of nothing in return. And I always love that. And that's why I say I have a love-hate relationship with branded content, because to me, you have to start with the fact that you want to make something for them that they would love. That if there was no other business things tied to this, that it's like, hey, this is a gift to our community that they're going to just like. They're going to share with their friends and they're just going to think that this is cool. Now, the other side of that 
is that you have to have all sorts of ways that this is going to drive actual revenue for your business. Otherwise, like you can't just be doing it that way. So, and we have a bunch of stuff that we did with ChimPass in that way and, and ways that we we looked at that and really cool integrations. Their team is so awesome. They have a really smart marketing team and content team and just the way that they've integrated it into a bunch of stuff to be able to have like spur conversations and talk about toxic behavior in the workforce and all this stuff, all these themes that the show brings up and to drive business value and sales conversations and, and all that stuff. That's awesome. You know, you mentioned some of the initial reaction. Obviously, the initial reaction is really, really good overall. Sometimes we focus kind of on the negative, but what you're doing is truly new, I think, for the podcast space and in B2B and specifically. So it reminds me a little bit of I think one of the most famous pieces of product placement, aka branded content that that I can remember was in a Super Bowl. You know, I think this must have been the 80s. Winning quarterback, I think it was for the team from Washington at that time, and the quarterback was Doug Williams. He wins Super Bowl, Mike shoved it in front of his face, says, hey, what are you going to do now, Doug? I'm going to Disneyland, right? That's right. And, you know, there were a lot of, I think, you know, collective groans and like eyes rolled at that moment. But guess what? It was really, really good for Disneyland, and it kind of became became an annual tradition for a little bit. So I think it's it's always hard for people sometimes with change, but it also starts feeling like it's part of you know the actual thing that you love and the story that you love. So it felt natural to me. I think it is too, and and I think that people generally just don't care. I mean, like, do you care that 007 drives a Mercedes or an Aston Martin? Do you really care? Like, do you care what type of watch they have? Like, if it detracts from the story, then like it matters, but if not, and like the thing that I tell people all the time with the product placement and stuff, ET drinks a Coors Yellow Belly in ET, drinks it, which is a yep. child's movie. The alien drinks the beer that was paid for by Coors. And then Coors ran an ad campaign saying, always phone home with E.T. and a Coors. Like product placement, Steven Spielberg made all of his movies. The reason why they're so good, because they had massive budgets, because he did product placement in them. So it's like your favorite art is subsidized by by commerce. And, and like that's how the world works. It, it is how the world works. <laughs> But it's it's crazy. I was actually thinking about Spielberg when you were talking earlier because I think the brilliance there, and I think something you're on to, is the product placement, if it's mentioned by a character or introduced by a character, it has to be kind of part of the that character's attributes, right? Exactly. I think he also liked Reese's pieces. Yeah. And you know, that becomes a lovable part of that, you know, and I and I think you achieve something very similar, you know, in murder of HR as well. So Yeah, that's the thing that I think is so silly about the conversation is that these brands do exist in the real world and we're trying to tell a fictional story that's like layered on top of the real world. So it's like, we should be yeah. talking about this. We do all sorts of other references in, in the show about, you know, using the call map or using like all these different, going to berries or all these things, because that's what people do. Like that's the stuff that people use. Those are the, the tricks of the trade in, in HR. And you want to tether that stuff. Now, the only reason why you don't want to do it is, is if you get in trouble and then you have to pull it out of the, out of your movie. But one of the best ads of all time is in Fast and the Furious, where he goes, you can drink any beer in the world you want, as long as it's a Corona. That's not, a, that wasn't a paid placement, but everyone thinks it is a paid placement. So it's just like stuff like that. Like yeah, of course, because Dom Toretto drinks Coronas and that's all he drinks because that makes exact sense to, to his character. That's amazing. I did not know that. Thanks for that. That's that's amazing. All right. Well, speaking of speaking of myths out there, I'd like to move on here. And l- let me ask you a question. What's a common myth 
about brand strategy that you think everybody needs to know? Oh my goodness. There's a lot of stuff to to think through, but I think most of all that your brand has to be always consistent. And this is like, you know, Apple used to be a, a client of mine back in the day. So like, I know what it's like, IBM, same thing. Like I know what it's like to work with brands that are extremely particular about their, about their brand and about everything looking and, and feeling the same. And I totally understand that. But there's times for your brand to experiment on doing things that are slightly outside of your color palette or your tone or your other stuff in ways that are really interesting in order to stand out. And I'll give you an example. So we make a lot of different podcast series. And one of the things that we always do is we want the podcast series cover and artwork and style to feel close enough to the brand that it's not a complete departure, but far enough to the brand that it doesn't look like all the other stuff. And if you're trying to tell a podcast like this one here, where we're going to have authentic conversations, and this isn't really a brand thing. Like, yes, it is, of course, but my thoughts are not like owned by your brand. I, anything that I say are not like owned by your brand. So you're doing it in partnership with other people. And so you can go outside of your brand a little bit to be more adventurous or to be more subdued or to be more quirky or to be more weird when you're doing things like that. And with content specifically, I think this is where, it, where the rubber meets the road here because people say like, well, we would never put our brand on blank mm-hmm. or we, our brand would never create that type of content. And it's like, why? Like what brand guide says, well, we would never sponsor a dirt bike competition because we're, you know, we're Apple and we don't believe in dirt bikes or something. You know what I mean? Like, why not? Mm-hmm. If that's where your customers are, if that's what they like, that is your brand. You should be doing that. So I think that people just play it a little bit too safe at times with brand. And then the rest of the time, you need to like deliver on it over and over and over again. You need brand consistency. You need the same thing showing up when it's supposed to show up. That's where like all the Apple and IBM and logo rules and all that stuff, that's where that really, really, really matters. But with your content, I think that that's your chance to experiment with things. That's great. I love all that. Okay, you mentioned consistency. You mentioned Apple, which has got to be one of the most consistent brands out there. And, and you know, to your point, maybe sometimes a little too safe. I speak to, and we at Intelligence Bank, we speak to a lot of heads of brand around the world, a lot of CMOs. A lot of times it's big global brands. They are dealing with lots and lots of partners and they're trying to really maintain consistency in, you know, what they refer to as brand compliance, right? Yep around the world. And I say this as I'm looking to you and I actually see two perfectly framed um, uh, Caspian (laughs) logos, two very different treatments, but they look extremely consistent. So what do you think the hardest thing is about achieving brand compliance? I do think it is that consistency. I think that's incredibly challenging. There are just so many, this is like what what y'all do every day. So you, you know this better than I, but there's just so many different places where your brand is going to appear in so many different formats, whether it's from your marketing initiatives, whether it's like actually on your product, whether it's all that stuff, getting that the same text correct, getting the same information correct, getting the same tone, the, um, uh, the, the design, um, the color palette, the logo, all those things. It's just so tough to, um, to make sure that it that it's all always right. And it does matter a lot. So I, I mean, I think it is about 
the consistency of the brand image. And then, you know, to my point earlier that I would just also add that one of the hard parts about, about achieving compliance is when you want to take a risk, what does that feel like? You know, <laughs> take gym pass, for example, someone's going to get electrocuted in the content that they're sponsoring, right? That's like, right. A lawyer had to look at that, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so things like that, where it's like when you want to take a risk, okay, A, we're going to sponsor a famous dirt biker. I don't know why I'm saying dirt biker today, but or an athlete. What about what that athlete says on Instagram? What about how they're going to portray our, our brand? Are they going to link to the right thing? Are they going to say the right thing? You know, how are we going to control that stuff? So when you want to take a risk, I think that's also can be challenging because if you do note it to death, it will feel watered down. Yeah, 100%. Since you mentioned racing, you know, one of our customers is Australian Grand Prix and, you know, Formula One has just been blowing up around the world. And, you know, that's a great example of you've got all these athletes, those 20 racers on the grid are some of the most, you know, famous athletes like on the face of the planet right now. And it's interesting, you know, I I think, you know, in their case, they try to keep a really tight rein on, you know, what images are authorized, what media clips are authorized for use of promotion with, you know, not only their organization, but with their partners. And it's really, really important, you know, to try to keep a rein on that. You've worked with so many enterprise brands in what you do in your production company, Caspian, and even before that. What is the review and approval process like in working with some of those brands that you help represent? It's a great question because it is so different. We've created series that have had parts of them that never see the light of day because somebody on the team says, you know, that's, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're not going to air that episode. You know, we've had, we've had episodes where guests have showed up drunk. We've had, you know, all sorts of stuff that has happened ac- across the shows. And again, to my point earlier is like, when you're creating content with other people, like you can't control the entire thing, right? You can control when you hit publish, if you hit publish, all those things. But, you know, if it's an event series or something like that, someone's saying something on a live channel, like you can't control it. And sometimes like they say the wrong thing. They say the competitor's name. They do something like that. So you do have to be careful on the approval process to make sure that you get it all right. So anyway, all that said, the approval process for us, so, so launching a show is about a 60-day process. There's a series usually of about five one-hour sessions that are like deep work sessions with the customer, making sure that we're creating something that's completely new, as I mentioned, something that lives sort of within the brand, but also outside the brand, something that's, that is going to be shocking and interesting looking. So that has to go through a review of, of their brand team. Almost always their designers are going to work with our designers on on the design elements of it. There's going to be a sign off from someone in marketing for the overall look and feel of the show, for the run of show that we create for the episodes. There's going to be a um, single person who's who can approve all that stuff. If there is legal, then uh, legal will get involved in, in some form. And then each individual episode needs to get approved by someone from you know our team before it goes live. And then it's usually approved by a PR person on the other team. Some people have like, you know, the ability to sign off on their own content, but most people, especially in big companies, have a PR team that's going to say like, yep, this was all good and it's approved or not. So it's not just on the brand side for that organization, but you're also dealing with all these other brands and they want to make sure that they're put forward in the, in the right light. You know, big things that we flag for, obviously anything that anyone is saying that's, that could be sensitive information that you don't want to get publicly, like earnings call numbers or anything like that, if it were to ever come up. 
And then so once we have sort of, you know, that show created and it gets the final sign-offs from everyone, then it's a matter of going live and creating all the ad copy and getting it all out there. Amazing. Certainly, there's a lot of process in there. You know, one of the things that we're seeing, you know, in the market, I, I feel like I've been like living in the tech space and living with, you know, AI, you know, companies that used AI and deployed AI for many years. But for sure, 2023, I think is going to remember it as the year that AI came to a lot of businesses that it hasn't been before. It's certainly been in the podcast space for quite a while. What role does AI play in the work that you do? How does it help you make you more productive or not productive? I think it all makes us a little not productive as well. <laughs> so two interesting things about AI for us. So like number one, so like murder and HR was 0% AI. So it was 100% made by humans, which is important for us for that series to be written and created by people and designed by people. And then other parts of our work does have AI. We, we've actually been using AI, AI for a while on the, uh, by point things like transcript, like AI generated transcripts, using transcripts to create uh, show notes and things like that looking at doing research and doing questions and, and all that. So we play with it all. We've used a lot of AI features when it comes to audio and video, of course, because that's our that's our world and static imagery as well, playing with a bunch of that stuff. It's exciting. I mean, I think it's very additive. Mm -hmm. People are worried a lot about replacing, but I think it's actually a little bit more additive. And I don't, I mean, I don't know the first thing about AI. I just know the tools and, you know, I saw a disclaimer yeah. there. But in using the tools and certain things that you can do are just like crazy helpful and productive. I think people get really caught up in parts of it of like, well, you can make a Seinfeld episode, you know, in AI. And I'm like, yeah, because you have all those seasons of Seinfeld that you can use. Like, you know what I mean? It can, of right. course, it can write a Taylor Swift song because Taylor Swift has made a bunch of albums. So it's like stuff like that, I think, is is really, it's cool, but it's very overblown in terms of like, it's going to, you know, take our jobs or anything like that, obviously, in the content world. But I think that discovering things that have heart, that are are authentic. I mean, one of the big things for us is like, AI can't tell the world what my, Q4 marketing budget's going to be, right? So that's always going to be interesting. It doesn't know what I'm planning for 2024. It's not forward-looking in being able to predict what people are actually going to do, you know, yet, I guess. But at the end of the day, like, that's what people want. Like, people want to know what William's brand strategy is. Uh, they want to know how you're spending your marketing budget. They want to know what tools you're using now. And uh, that's not what AI does. What AI does is for a lot of our producers, it's a little AI assistant that helps them get their job done a little bit faster. Yeah. AI assistance, I think is for me, like, you know, the big kind of mantra for 2023 as well. As you pointed out, a lot of it is in the tools that you use. It's like, you know, auto tagging images and videos and things like that, you know, using object recognition, things like that, that previously you would have had to actually have a person to go in there and do all that. And, or yeah. instead of sometimes like calling like a, a brainstorming meeting, you know, you boot up BART or boot up ChatGPT or something like that and, and actually have a little brainstorming session with AI. Sometimes that's helpful. It's definitely no replacement for uh, human beings, but I think we're all a little bit more productive this year for it, hopefully. For sure. Yeah. Like in brainstorming ideas, getting uh, ideas for marketing copy or campaigns or for show notes or for episode titles and all that stuff. Like that's the stuff that our team is is using just to to get ideas there and, and to do all that. And we were doing this stuff anyways. We were just using like you know, a hundred and one great ways to uh, write an email subject header. Like, I mean, what's the difference between finding some listicle that says that and using AI? That's right. That's right. You mentioned earlier that you had HR experience in the army. You know, how did 
your experiences as a soldier set you up for success in the rest of your life? Yeah, so I went to West Point and then I was in the army for five years after that. And uh, and so a lot of leadership training, um, <laughs> obviously. Uh, I mean, I think West Point's the world's premier leadership academy, as they as they like to tell you. And, uh, and so I think that um, with that, um, we just studied so much about it and, and got so much practice, you know, leading people at West Point and then obviously, uh, in the, in the army, um, leading people during, during, you know, dress, you know, going, um, doing HR stuff, uh, in the army when I was in Afghanistan and, and the stuff that, uh, um, you know, you deal with over there is not something you deal with really anywhere else. And so, um, a lot of what I learned was about, um, priorities and what is important and, um, how to take care of people in, you know, difficult times and, you know, how to optimize the, the work for a team that's working long hours and working late, um, you know, how to be a better, you know, husband and father and, and all that stuff when you are home, being super present when you're home is, is really important. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's all that. One of the stories that I like to tell about, uh, about my time in the army. So I, I, when I first went to Afghanistan, I showed up and long story short, um, um, my boss, uh, who's amazing, um, she couldn't deploy. Um, and so, uh, I basically had to deploy in her job. And so I was basically two levels below what I should be in this, in this position. And I showed up, um, and I was doing my, like, um, I was meeting the, the person who was already there, the outgoing guy. And he was, he was like, Ian, like you're in casualty operations and you know, in HR. And he's like, you're going to have a million rubber balls and glass balls that you have to be juggling. And for you, casualty operations is a glass ball. You, if it, if, if you drop it, it will break. And, um, if you screw up something with casualty operations, you can never fix it. Whereas if you drop the ball on someone's evaluation or their award or something else, um, you can pick it up, you can make the mistake and you can fix it. Um, and it's not a, not a good thing to drop the ball, but you're going to drop balls and you have to know which are the, the highest priorities. And, uh, and that just stuck with me forever that it's like, you have to just know the things in your business, uh, the things with your team that are like non-negotiable priorities that you, you can never miss uh, you can't drop because you don't get a second chance at it. Now, turns out in the civilian world, pretty much everything is a rubber ball <laughs> because there's because <laughs> there's not it's not life and death stakes all the time. But it does help you prioritize like which are the things that you can drop and and which ones you can't. And then I'll just share one like super quick anecdote as well. We had two, a day shift and a night shift, and um, they would always fight. They'd always blame people. So we switched a bunch of the people on on each team. And then everything got fixed. And then like like a month later, everyone's fighting. They're all blaming each other. Night, night shift does this, day shift does this. I'm like, dude, you were just on day shift. What are you talking about? Like, whatever, you know, whatever. And um, got everybody together and sort of talked about it and like just worked through their problems. And like things come up. People are not perfect. They have problems. Like you have to work through that stuff. And like there's so many things that just you need to just 
bring people in a room and, and talk about it. And it's just really, really easy to finger point at the other team or the other person or the other thing. And it's really hard to say I'm the problem. And so it's just easier to scapegoat other people. And we had a rule is like, you can't blame day shift or you can't blame night shift and you have to sort of work through the problem and that helped too. Yeah. God, so much good stuff there. I love the the anecdote about, you know, what the highest priority is. And um, it's a little reminder that what we think of as high stakes are sometimes not high stakes, right? I think you're completely right on that last point. I think you know, one of the things that I look for in people, and this is one of the reasons that I actually love when I can hiring people who have been in some kind of public service or especially in the military, is they really understand this idea of ownership and extreme ownership. Right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the most powerful words in the room, I think, are, hey, I'm guilty. Yeah, I did that. And owning up to it and showing your team that you can do that as well. Great stuff. OK, listen, before we wrap, I want to give you a chance to plug something. And I actually have an idea for you, True. which is I know that you have a new book on the way. So why don't you tell us what that book's about? Yeah. So it's called The Serialized Content Framework how the best B2B marketing teams drive pipeline with a portfolio of podcasts and video series, which is the wordiest title I could possibly think of. But yeah, the serialized content framework, it's basically a book about all the different ways that B2B companies can drive revenue and use use series to supercharge their brand. And it's a lot about this like idea of brand gen and figuring out a way to get demand and brand to work together and to have a campaign that does both, which is super important in B2B. But yeah, no, check it out. It's cool. It's a quick read at 69 pages, not very long. And if you want to listen to it, you can listen to it via podcast or you can watch it on YouTube. So we made it available for free in all three and you can just go to caspianstudios.com to, to check it out. I love it. And I've definitely seen it. I'd say like almost everything in that book is a value. Maybe if there's one page that's not a value, but uh, <laughs> the memes. <laughs> I was going to say the page with me on it is not a value, but <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's one. No. Um, <laughs> awesome. Well, it's a terrific framework. So want to encourage everybody to head on over to Caspian Studios, not just for that, but also just to see all the other goodies that you all offer. I think you're doing great work. And um, thank you so much for the incredible conversation. Love the conversation. Love the hour. Thanks so much, William. Really appreciate it. And congrats on all the awesome work that Intelligence Bank is doing. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Brand Intelligence. If you have any questions or feedback, please send us an email at podcast at intelligencebank.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, share it with others who might be interested in the world of branding and marketing. And if you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Once again, thanks for listening and see you next time on Brand Intelligence. Thank you.